0: Welcome to Indie Game Business, where you'll learn to navigate the industry with ease. This show is produced by The Powell Group, the leading business consulting firm in the game industry. Visit us online at indiegame.business to get your free pass to our next digital event coming December 8th, 9th, and 10th, where you'll have more great sessions you can participate in for free and inexpensive passes to our industry-leading digital business to business meeting system also make sure to donate to extra life we've got a link down below in the description or you can even join the indie game business extra life team that link is down in the description as well here we go indie game business
1: Hi guys, hope you can hear me okay. My name is Elena, I'm Corporate Development Director in ENET Global 7, Swedish holding and a family of game development companies that span the entire value chain of uh, the gaming business. And um, as you can see, we're pretty active in the market right now. And I guess since everybody's asking the same question about what the hell is with all this MA deals going on um, it would be good to just you know talk and see um what's, what's happening, what is happening and what is going to happen on the M a side of the gaming business. and um, yeah let's just take a look at, at 2020. I think that's 21 billion dollars of transactions. Is a record number so far, and if you needed something to convince your parents that you're actually doing serious business and not just you know playing some sort of games, you're welcome. Uh, twenty one billion, even more. I think twenty one point two. What what is the thing? Why why did companies just start like buying each other like crazy and? Uh, some dramatic stuff also happened, like for example, Electronic Arts stepping at the last minute into this uh, Code Masters deal, uh, basically outbidding the Take Two, as if this moment, you know, in this Hollywood uh, romantic comedies, when in church and wedding, somebody asks, like, if there's somebody who can say anything, do it now or be silent forever, and somebody just like appears. So, in all this, uh, in all this activity happening, let's just try and take a look. What is the reason behind it? What are the most common problems? And what shall you do with all of it? So last year. 2020. For us, uh, it was three acquisitions. We welcomed to our family um, the amazing crowd from Big Blue Bubble in Canada, Piranha Games also in Canada, and Daybreak Studios in the US. It is quite peculiar because all of the acquisitions happened entirely by Zoom, which is basically unprecedented for our industry because I think one of the key pillars of a successful acquisition is the cultural fit. And how do you get to know the culture if you are not able to just travel, spend time um, in the office, meet the team, and like actually have a human conversation? Well, I guess for us it was also revelation. We kind of understood that if if there is a click, if you know that these people are like-minded, if you see that they share your core values and ideas, it doesn't matter which way you met. It means that no matter if it's a personal connection or is it just like a Zoom or Google Meets meeting, you will be able to pick up the vibe and you'll be able to understand, yes, these people will be able to work with. And um, yeah, I guess um, talking about the reasons behind the, the acquisitions, the most common answer that and buzzword that you hear these days is synergies. What are the synergies? I mean, obviously um, adding the Revenues and EBITDA on top of balance sheets is always a good idea. But what else is there? Is it just about money? Because obviously none of us are in this business for just money because there are way um, easier and faster ways to build a fortune than making games. Now, we're here because we believe that it's not just a business, it's also art. And the business is very, like, multiversal and there's so much happening and of course you look at some complementary companies that can basically cover you up in some spaces you're weak you're looking at your best angles and your best aspects and thinking how you can strengthen them to become like absolutely unprecedented and like uncompeted in the market and if you look at what's been happening um let's say last here, you will see that most of the deals were between either market giants, such as electronic cards, or let's say um, Zynga, or of course the holdings like Steelfront, like Embracer, like us and like Tencent. All of these deals were mainly like spread between these two types. And uh, if you look at the, if you look at the large players, such as let's say, zynga acquiring pink games you will see that this is the perfect example of the synergical acquisition it's not just i mean obviously we can see that um so far zynga had their best year like their best financial year and this growth is fully unorganic because they have been acquiring companies for quite some time it's just that it popped up on our radar when all this MA frenzy started happening and uh, if you look at what they acquired and if you look at Let's say uh, electronic art is acquiring glue. You will see that they have a stable and a very, let's say, well worked together business unit. And this is why I think this is what is the reason behind most of this, um, most of this synergical deals. Because look, the experience of Google and Amazon with their studios basically like being shut down and not actually doing the that well as planned it proves that you cannot just take industry veterans you cannot take the experts give them money give them you know like an office put them there and say hey now go and create the magic i think it proves very well that the magic only happens when the team has been together for some time when people know each other when they have worked together when they have you know failures and victories together and this is how this is how magic magic actually works, and this is what the companies are paying for. They have successful teams that know each other, that are able to produce something together, and they can see that it is proven in the like his, history okay. of their success. It's proven on their balance sheets. It's proven in the consecutive kits that they have been able to launch on the market. And uh, this is the best, and I think this is the most healthy type of the acquisition because, let's say, being good in a certain genre and acquiring a company that is able to become like a roll-up and to strengthen your experience in this genre is, I think, the most solid bet. It's actually the same for us, and I think it's pretty much the same for everyone out there. And uh, talking about synergies and talking about all this competition, I think everybody is asking the same question, that are the synergies maybe a little bit overestimated? Is there a chance that the market is so overheated by this panic of, you know, oh my God, we're not gonna make it in time. Everyone is going to buy everyone. Is there a chance that the multiples are a little bit overestimated as well? I mean, certainly so, and I think that's situations when the company can come a little bit overpriced are quite common recently and i think that it's really important to kind of understand how these synergies are actually going to actually going to show and how these synergies are actually and truly valued and how to do that how to answer this question the answer is due diligence I think due diligence is the most important aspect of any acquisition. It's it's usually, it's common to think that a successful deal is a deal that, get, that got closed. In our opinion, successful deal is a deal when you're absolutely like transparent and you have the objective picture of how the company is doing. Because sometimes you may encounter things that are like absolutely on, on unapproachable something that you absolutely have no idea how to handle and i think the earlier you understand that the better you do the due diligence the more you understand about how company is actually functioning there are deep deep lying uh issues the better you'll be able to give the objective valuation and the better you'll be able to integrate the company further we're going to talk about onboarding and integration a bit down the line but due diligence um we usually Divided into like three um, different stages. Well, sometimes it's it's two. It's basically legal and financial and there is the commercial and operation. Sometimes we um, We divide commercial and operations into like development, technical, analytical um, and marketing. But sometimes we just do this like overall analysis of things and in honest conversations with the key team members of every team, be it game development, be it analytics, be it marketing, or whoever else is there, uh, the honest conversations are the only way to kind of find out if this is a match. The only way to understand that this is the right company. They're going to be like fully, let's say, onboarded, and they're going to be beneficial to the existing structure. Because I think that we all we all believe that somehow, in a way that once the deal is done, the job is done. No, actually, it's just the beginning because what follows is the most important part, the onboarding. Um, we used to say integration, but since, you know, 7 is a very light-touch uh, company, we do not really interfere with uh, the company's day-to-day operations. Um, we always, you know, try to give them as much freedom as we can so that nothing actually happens, nothing actually changes for... For the employees because you see acquisitions are always stressful for like you know uh, common employer, employees because they think what's going to happen now? Am I going to you know um, report to other person? Is my job secure? What's going on? Obviously we don't want them to be stressed and we always try to communicate that nothing is going to change. The only thing we're going to do is to enable the companies and provide them with everything they need to do um, to just fully concentrate on what they do best, be it developing best-in-class games, be it develop, like, launching best-in-class marketing campaigns, whatever it is. And um, onboarding is basically just connecting the teams and understanding like how would be the best way to work together. And for us, onboarding is one of the most important phases, and um, it's really crucial to make sure that there is a connection between the teams. Because you see, we have several game development companies and they all interact they all help each other they share their resources they share their talent they share everything and this is how we need to do it, we need to connect the teams, we need to, to kind of understand the team dynamics so that people know who they show contact, so that people know who will help them in case they encounter any sort of trouble or any sort of an issue. And you can never underestimate the power of, underestimate the, power of the collective knowledge, because sometimes encountering the complex problem it's only like the collective mind that can help um, overcome the issue, and it's really it's really wonderful to see how it happens because, uh, yeah, the power of the mind. Our biggest resource is people, and our biggest like asset is people. So no matter how important IP is, people um, are our best chance. So onboarding and integration as um, you know, the log- next logical step after um, a thorough due diligence process is also the key to success. Because again, adding revenues and balance sheet is nice. But if you want to actually enable the company to do better, if you actually want to help the business grow, it's absolutely crucial to make sure that the business processes are aligned. You need to see that there's positive dynamics between the teams and there is like communication is happening because everybody knows that communicating, communication is key. So yeah, and as you can see, um, there is a lot of holding acquisitions recently because I think last year, uh, our fellow Embracer group has closed 23 deals, like a whopping amount. Um, Still, France also closed like around six, and I think same number applies to Tencent, which means that 23 deals is a lot. How do you actually manage, you know, this number of companies? And I think that having like a clear and strategic goal about what are you trying to achieve, having these companies on board is also uh, one of the key elements and having a clear strategy and clear expectations is also like, you know, I actually should have mentioned it first. However, it's, you see, it's different. It's, it's difficult to kind of, uh, number these elements in their in the order of importance because Everything is important. You have to consider so much. You have to hold in mind like so much. And what does it mean for developer? Because I'm sure that, well, indie game business, um, I'm sure that a lot of uh, indie developers are listening to me right now. And they're also aspiring you know, to build an amazing game, to raise an investment, maybe to also become a part of a larger entity. Well, that's great and what do you need to know what do you need to do right now to make sure that tomorrow you're going to be um, you know even more uh, competitive even more successful what you need to do is to track you need to kind of create a framework in which you can show the potential buyer or potential investor what has been going on with the company Especially if the team is relatively new and especially if this is your first game. Every single, um, every single strength that you have, every single aspect that makes you stand out of uh, any sort of crowd. I personally think that every single gaming company is amazing and everybody deserves, you know, a moment of attention. But how, um, how do you make sure you get this attention? I think that the more structured you are, I think that the more, you know, the more you are, documenting things that you're doing the more you are highlighting your strengths and the more honest you are also about your weaknesses and understanding like how this investor or how this acquirer can actually help you scale how they can help you grow uh, this is the key uh to success this is the key to being seen to being heard to being recognized and uh, talking about um, talking about other aspects Let's see what are we, what shall we expect from, uh, from um, the future deals I'd say? I think that's more and more important becomes the role of due diligence and maybe we're going to see you know artificial intelligence being a part of it because crunching lots of data and numbers is something that can be easily lifted you know from people basically going all over these Excel spreadsheets and uh, calculating in different currencies. I think that um, globalization and companies basically uh, expanding their global reach and going into other regions that used to be more reserved, let's say. Uh, We can see a lot of growing interest to India. We can see a lot of growing interest to Latin America. Asia is becoming more and more open reach have always, like, historically been very um, very reserved and very, like, domestic, let's say. Um, we can definitely expect major publisher consolidation all over the world because companies will be trying to secure um, the bigger and bigger market share. And obviously, to secure the, well, the bigger the player you are on the market, the more stable you are, the more the more likely you are to get the best, to receive the best hits, to publish the best titles. And uh, obviously the growing um, community of indie developers worldwide is going to contribute to that a lot. I think that this market consolidation and having more and more resources on hand will be also super beneficial to indie devs community because there will be more cash in the market, there will be more investments, more and more talented team will be uh, recognized and more and more talented team will receive funding, which I think is a very good thing. And um, with everything that's happening with um, next-generation consoles, and, well, we can see that there's not so much happening because there's not so many major releases that are uh, targeting the next-gen consoles. I think there's plenty of space for indie game devs to also work in that direction. And maybe investments in MA in that direction are also going to be large. Um, obviously, mobile gaming is only growing and will be growing more and more. And although there are certain concerns about IDFA and like lack of context advertising and lack of like quality leads, let's say, is going to slightly shake the market, but I'm sure that we're going to see a lot of interesting technological partnerships and interesting solutions popping up, and maybe that will also be another aspect of m and investments into this technological space. And, um, yeah, ad tech and gaming also. Look at uh, what's been going on with, for example, um, and or Adjust and, um I think enabling brands to safely enter the games, like this super interesting company called Anzo.io is doing, basically allowing to have extra monetization integrating the brands into the uh, gaming content. I think this is also a trend um, worth checking. And overall, I think that this MA frenzy, as it's been called by different major game development, um, game development uh, gaming magazines and uh, media is definitely something to slightly look out for because you see, some people are concerned that this MA bubble is going to burst at some point. However, I do believe that the effort the companies are putting into into the onboarding and integration, the effort they're putting into their operational component of m I think it's definitely going to pay off. And I think it's a safe bet to say that 2021 is going to bring even more interesting partnerships, even more interesting acquisitions. And um, yeah, I think for all of us, there's a lot to look forward to. I guess um, that's all I wanted to tell you about. Uh, I'll be more than happy to Answer all your questions or direct you to any sources I've been using to uh, prepare for my little speech. And overall, I just wanted to thank the organizers for providing such an amazing event and for letting us all meet. So thank you, Jay. Thank you, Peter. Thanks, everyone, for your attention.
2: Well, thanks for coming and doing this. This is fantastic, and it's how we let a lot of these companies understand and get to know this part of the industry. So we've already got a few questions coming in. And if you're out there Mm -hmm. listening on YouTube or Facebook or Twitter or LinkedIn or wherever you may be, if you drop a question in chat, we'll see it no matter where you are. And we'll get uh, we'll get an answer (laughs) right here. Just don't
1: go to my Twitter. It's only memes out there and they're very obscene and absolutely not worthy to translate here.
2: (laughs) Well, don't worry. People (laughs) that follow me on Twitter get frequent updates on what kind of beer I'm drinking. So it's all. it's good space
1: space. good good no judgment so i spoke of onboarding and doing due diligence are there core values that you look for in your studios and are the uniform because of the own. that is a very interesting question graham thank you so much for ans- asking this you see it's always very mm, hard to find a compromise between preserving the original culture of the company or translating your own values and broadcasting these values into the company. And I think in Asia 7, we found a really great balance because we're looking for like-minded companies. We're looking uh, for cultures that are a priori similar to ours. And in a broader perspective, I think that several principles that guide us um, through the industry, which are transparency, fairness, integrity, honesty, communication, and ownership of everybody, of every single employee, no matter how senior or how junior, I think they're very universal across, I would even say across all industries. I think that's what's been guiding us in through like this M&A journey is basically finding capable, excited, ambitious, and really driven people who actually want to make the difference, who love games, who love gaming, who understand that they want to do the best, who are always hungry, who never stop at and rest on their laurels, you know, who are always looking for what's out there on the horizon. And I think so far, we've been really lucky. We've been really blessed with uh, Big Blue Bubble Team. I love these folks. Piranha, absolutely amazing. The Do you know that Piranha has been... Uh, some of the employees, most of the employees who started with them like 20 years ago, they're still on board. And it's basically... It's an honor to witness such an amazing culture. And I think that learning from each other and adopting the the best practices and basically transferring these best practices for to like all of us and seeing things we have never seen like for example uh big blue bubble has this amazing mentorship program in which they basically um get the postgrads and high school students from from the universities in london ontario and uh they get their senior employees to teach them and to like mentor them in uh, in game development and game design and literally anything and look this is so clever senior people have another like level of excitement and um, they're able to transfer their knowledge. They're able to, you know, feel empowered. And the postgrads and people with no experience, they get to learn from the best of the best in the whole industry. So this is something we also plan to kind of try on uh, different studios of ours. And this is a perfect example of how we're just like learning from each other. We're never ever trying to kind of you know force people into something they don't feel like doing. We don't want to force any sort of principles onto them, but we're always happy to learn and we're always happy to teach if they want to, so I hope I answered your question.
0: Are you looking for a publisher for your game? Well we have something special just for you. It's the most comprehensive listing of PC, console and mobile publishers in the industry. Over 700 companies sorted by platform with links to their websites. You can get the list at www.powellgroupconsulting.com slash publisher dash list. And you can get it for free. Check it out.
1: How do indie devs attract the attention of the MA companies? This is also a very good question because you see, um, I see so many inspiring projects uh, while looking for the next acquisition targets. I see so much that I literally want to like, shut up and take my money. I would definitely fund every single one of them. And uh, it's really amazing how talented and how driven and how passionate our industry is. Uh, however, when it comes down to business, uh, we can talk about passion a lot, but what is needed is facts. Facts are your best weapon uh, in attracting any sort of investment or MA and um, a deal. Because you see, uh, sometimes, like I mentioned before, the uh, teams have never worked together. They have never produced anything together. And maybe they have, like, some experience from working on, like, some, let's say, known title, something that has already been on the market. This is also, like, a big point uh, for for an investor because people who've been actually dealing with something already commercially successful, they are trusted people. So if your team um, has worked on, I don't know, Uncharted or Last of Us, highlight this. Absolutely brag about it. Put it everywhere, like throw it on the banner, whatever. Uh, if you have a, like a clear plan how to use the investment, if you have a clear plan of how much funding you need and how you're going to spend it, this is also like a major plus. For us, it's a huge plus to understand what the company actually wants from us. I mean, obviously, of course, um, every deal is a combination of stock and shares. But behind stock and shares, there's also a lot that, again, we can learn from each other. There's a lot we can help in terms of opening the doors because together we're a much bigger player in the market. We're much more notable and we're much less um, likely to be ignored by any like major companies. So that also, but yeah, to go back to my previous point, because I'm kind of running ahead of the train here, Um, having a clear business plan of how you plan to spend the investment and how you plan to utilize the existing framework of your potential buyer is always, like, a huge deal, and it's always going to help you. Uh, I think last piece of advice, avoid doing the hockey sticks, like – in twenty twenty we had this, in twenty twenty one we had this, but look at twenty twenty five, we're gonna be there. It never works. It always like looks a little bit suspicious. And um we always suggest you try to be fair and square and you try to be as honest and transparent as you can. And yeah, so basically highlighting your strength, being able to produce like a clear and concise statement of what you're looking for from the investor and being absolutely honest. That's it. How does a new indie team calculate the value of their company before they release a game? Oh, dude, I wish I knew. I would definitely make my own company. Now, nah, sorry, jokes aside, um, I think the the biggest value of um, any company in our game business is people. I think that the more you know about your people and the more you know about what they're capable of is, um, is your biggest path. Of course, having again like a clear budget of how much you want, how much you intend to um, spend on the game, uh, and the overall plan of who's your addressable audience. For example, if you're, let's say, doing a VR game, you're it's easy to calculate that your audience is rather limited so you need to have some heavier advantages on your plate to, to show to the uh, potential buyers and investors. Uh, if you're making like an Android mobile game, obviously you're addressing like basically half the universe so it's always easier. But you always need to know um, who you're addressing, how many people, uh, how you're planning to attract these people, the unique selling points of the game, and the people, obviously the people. So um, to be honest, I've never, ever been a part of like any indie team, and I've never, ever been selling my own company. But looking from the other side, looking from this perspective, I think that this is about the best piece of advice I can give you.
2: All right. This is good. I mean, this is, this is why we asked because that's one of the questions that came up the other day mm-hmm. as well. It's like, so where do we even start trying to figure out how much we're worth? And so it's all, it's good to hear that there's not a, a concrete oh answer, you know, as well. That way mm-hmm. you know, we can all guess together. That's the, um, that's the takeaway. So uh, you mentioned it, and it's very true. We've had a absolutely crazy year of acquisitions. You know, I sent Mm -hmm. a buddy of mine an email the day that Embracer stuff came across. And I said, I'd looked in my inbox and Mm -hmm. I see that you all did not buy me this morning. And I want to know why I got left out since you bought basically everybody else. Do, are, are there trends that you're seeing in the sense of, Certain styles of companies, certain styles of games that are drawing the most attention right now. I mean, is it was it okay? Who's doing something like Among Us, and now it's going to be who's doing something like Valheim? Mm-hmm. Are there trends in there that you're seeing?
1: Yeah, I think uh, trying to try to test mechanics, like proven mechanics, is always seems to be a safer bet. But uh, honestly, we also get a bit suspicious when somebody says uh we're trying to make dark souls but better and you're like yeah good luck with that but i think that's the uniqueness is the exact thing that actually uh has brought success to these companies the uniqueness of uh the stuff Tonic is doing the uniqueness of Fortnite, the uniqueness of among us i think this is a key component that brought us that brought them into this you know um into this niche and I think that there is no recipe for creating like a commercially successful games that every single investor is going to like beat on. I think that innovation, clever innovation, when you actually can measure and predict the success. I think this is a key for it. And not just copy copying the popular mechanics. I mean look, we also had like a number of battle royale games after like a certain notorious game was launched and how much do we know about them now? Do you remember any others? I don't. so I think that you shouldn't limit yourselves in you know this popular mechanics. be creative, think of something different, think of something I don't know shocking think of something that is going to that the whole world is going to talk about something like this, and big chances the world is going to be talking about.
2: So the other thing that we've seen in the last couple of years is everybody's still going on the hyper-casual route and even Mm hyper-casual games are evolving into nearly what I would say are the casual games from 10 years ago. They're not really that quick five minute thing anymore. They all have metas on there and, and, you know, different Mm -hmm. things layered on top of them for the next, you know, six to 12 months, do you see, you know, that surge in people going after the hyper casual developers continuing because it's lasted quite frankly longer than a lot of us had expected you know seeing the other you know trends that go through the industry
1: mm-hmm. are we talking from consumer perspective or from business perspective
2: Bins- business perspective
1: Mm-hmm. Sure. I think that we can all agree that hyper casual teams and hyper casual companies are not exactly like the large IP holders. It's not the IP you're buying, mostly, it's the expertise of the team. Mostly, it's the versatility of the team, their ability to streamline the development. Their ability to do a quality user acquisition and marketing and their clever mechanics of keeping people entertained clever monetization mechanics. So I think that there is definitely going to be a uh, constant continuous interest for hyper casual and casual uh, till the end of the year. But, well, I'm not even sure like how we're supposed to predict uh, 2022 because look, I also had like high hopes for 2021 and it's literally was like previously in 2020 and you're like, oh God, please no. So I think that for 12 months for sure, hyper casual and casual apps will be safe. What's going further? Good question. Let's see how much restrictive um, uh, big players politics is going to be about, well, third body tracking and you know what's happening with IDFA has already shaken the market a lot and although Android market is still like untouched by this who knows who knows what would be the next step so I think that in such uncertainty um again I'm going back to my biggest point talent and team are the biggest asset of our industry the biggest and the best so don't be a jerk treat your people well yes
2: that's um, that's always one of the fundamentals that we teach. You don't burn bridges in this industry because it will yeah. absolutely come back and bite you. So, uh, <laughs> Poop Scoop has a question here. And this is something we actually touch on on the show a lot. Is all of this MA and consolidation really that new? Is there not cyclical consolidation historically in our industry?
1: Oh, absolutely. I think that's uh, every. every- Happening is basically just repeating itself. The history is repeating itself. And for sure, we've seen this like in 2014 and we've seen seen it in 2015. And uh, obviously, there's like it comes and goes in waves. Obviously, probably it's going to mild down at some point and maybe surge again at some other point. I think that market trends and people basically looking at what others are doing is like it's very typical for human nature. Look at what's happening with fashion. Look at what's happening with movies, and um, I think it's normal. I think it's absolutely logically predictable, and um, definitely we shall expect another wave.
2: So, do you see a a bigger upside right now for mobile game developers or PC and console developers?
1: I think it's basically a fair square for everybody. I think the playing field is leveled quite fairly. And uh, no matter which um, platform you're developing, you always have a chance. However, mobile has always been the most versatile. For me, it's a big question, because mobile platform, it was not exactly purpose for games. And it was not exactly purpose for gamers. But somehow, I mean, it's the most versatile thing. And uh, since we've all been, do you remember the times when we went to the office, you know, (laughs) commute, all these things? Me neither that that time you could see you could look around like the tube and you would see people playing playing and playing and playing all kinds of games, be it like three match, be it like something more like hardcore or whatever else. Uh, right now we're all trapped at home and we're all staring at screens and you you know this this part of the day when you're kind of like getting tired of staring at the large screen and you just go like go to the smaller screen and that that's what's happening. I think that best bet in this environment is being omnichannel. It's been like providing cross play and switching from one platform to another. Being able to play the same game on your uh, computer and on your console or on your mobile is always like a safe bet. And, and you can see that more complex mechanics uh, are basically uh, migrating from PC, like traditional, their traditional space in PC to mobile, like Genshin Impact, for example, that has basically jumped over all like the charts um, around the world. And um, yeah, crossplay, omni channel, versatility, always a key bet.
2: That was actually going to be my next question. You know, it looks like Genshin has taken what we typically look at as a console, you know, title with the level of quality and the depth and the size of the world and all mm-hmm. this sort of stuff, and it has brought it down to mobile.
0: Mm-hmm. How
2: do you see that affecting the status of? Other mobile games, you know, in the next year or two years, because it's mm-hmm. it's it's really something completely new for for a free to play mobile game.
1: Completely new, and I think very beneficial for the markets because I believe that previously the game developers were always a bit cautious about launching something complex and something like such of a high standard on the device that was not exactly um, developed for gaming and for gamers. But now the plank is very high, and there is like this precedent, this case of this highly commercial success. So I think more and more developers will be able to dare and produce something larger, something more complex, something more beautiful, because I must say that Genshin Impact is absolutely beautiful. And um, I think we shall see more of that now that we have the proof, a living proof, that games like that can strive.
2: completely lost my train of thought there just like that it's my world while i figure it out i'm going to go to to dibs question do you think mm-hmm. crossplay will grow as a thing like rocket
1: league i'm uh, to my shame i must admit i have never even heard of rocket league however i think same on me. I know. Don't tell my mom. Um, I think crossplay is stuff that I've been seeing a lot in uh, in presentations of the larger companies. If you go to see Google's, Apple's, and like Microsoft or EA stuff, you will see uh, the word crossplay popping up and down there. And I think that's well again what we mentioned before about the versatility. I think is definitely going to to be uh, a clear trend. You can also find a lot of. New companies that are appearing uh, with very interesting distribution models. Like, for example, the company called, um, it's not the company, it's the platform is called Air Console from a very lovely team from Zurich. Um, they basically enable, they provide a platform that allows you to turn your smartphone into a gamepad and play it on your Android TV or on a web browser, like as a console. So basically it's 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 uh, house parties by design it's basically like transforming the multiplayer verse without playing on console without a console. So I think it's already like very exciting. However, I just thought of house parties and like you know looked from the window to see if the police is coming but it's no we're socially distant.
2: <clears throat> so I, I remembered what I, I had there the um... So, so we for years, we've told Indie Devs, you have to be very careful about building free-to-play games because it's not something that you can feasibly self-publish given what you have to spend in user acquisition. And you know that's what has separated a lot of free-to-play developers from the premium developers. But now with things like Kitchen Impact, where we're seeing what appears to be more of a premium-style game, is there a path to small indie devs self-publishing games like that or is it still going to be reliant on publishers and investors coming in and dropping Hmm. hundreds of thousands of dollars in user acquisition
1: that is a really good question i think jay that's uh the current Ecosystem of gaming companies is providing a lot of opportunities to self-publish, from online courses for you know marketing in UA which a lot of them became uh, absolutely free of charge during the pandemic to support the businesses, to you know uh, growth platforms such as Unity growth platform, and more and more companies are kind of you know who who already have the experience, let's say in user acquisition and games marketing, they are start they are starting to think that. How about we actually make it, well, not software as a service, not platform as a service, but more like, what if we invest into other gaming companies and take, like, the revenue share for them? And this is what's happening. Like, the hybrid models, the companies that are not doing, like, traditional publishing, but they invest into gaming companies and their growth. I also know some major hyper-casual studios that also invest a lot in um, smaller hyper-casual teams. And this investment is not like, um, let's say, traditional investment. It's more like they're covering the run rate of the company, they invest into the product, and that's pretty much it. And again, they take the revenue share. However, to be back to my point, uh, there's a lot of opportunities to self-publish. And there's also a lot of very reputable publishers who know the mechanics. Who have the expertise and who's been working on the market for long enough to know the ropes. So it's always about the expertise. If you feel you have it on board, you have all the ways around you. If you feel like it's better, safer bet to have a trusted partner, there's plenty of those. So what, in your opinion, I mean...
2: I agree with you wholeheartedly. It's, it's far more important to have a good team that can put together compelling stuff and adapt and, and iterate on their projects than it is to have like the all-purpose wonderful game. But mm-hmm. what is the, the one thing that indie studios can do to prepare themselves and to make them as a more attractive target for m and
1: Structure. Always a structure. Being able to produce a clear and concise statement about where you have been, what are you doing now, and what you aspire to do in the future. I think this is a key for a discussion because, like we earlier mentioned, a lot of teams have never produced anything like any full project before together. But if they show that they are structured, if they show that they have a clear vision of what they want to achieve and how exactly the investor or acquirer can help them this is always a decent foundation for a good conversation good advice so Mm
2: -hmm. we've only got a few more minutes here if anyone else has got questions for elena go ahead and pop them in Mm -hmm. the chat wherever you're listening or you can
1: find me on any, any social media out there except for don't go to my twitter seriously guys it's obscene
2: you're on our discord too right Yes. Yes. So we, we have post session chats there as well, but, you know, this is always interesting. All right. So you mentioned something a few minutes ago and then we got off on Genshin and you said that mobile, you know, one of the differences between mobile developers and, and the PC console developers is that mm-hmm. mobile developers, mobile development is more versatile. Yes. Can you go a little more in depth into that and explain, you know, what you were talking about?
1: Mm. Well, first of all, um, I guess it's down to some sure sort of like the screen size, because you don't really need to, you know, provide that level of details that is going to be uh, anyway not visible on the smaller screen. Then it's the gaming mechanics. I know that, you know, when I was, um, when I was head of international relations in Meru, I was doing a lot of public talks about how to promote and monetize your game in Russia the mobile game, of course. Okay. And you see, uh, one of my most um, common answers was to make the game playable with just one hand. Because if you look at larger cities in Russia where the most paying audience comes from, like Moscow, like St. Petersburg, like other like larger cities, you'll see that they're huge. And the commutes are always the longest. And what do people do, like on a commute? I mean, of course, I would love to do like this dramatic Russian and say the read Dostoevsky, but they play mobile games. And being able to play with one hand, being able to put the game on pause and for for a second to switch, you know, uh, metro lines or to leave the bus, uh, that is already like great mechanics for higher retention and for like the easier the game is to play, the safer bet you have. And uh, there's a lot of these little aspects. But I think that still the device that is not, well, the device that was not designed for gaming, becoming like the most popular gaming um, device out there, is like more of an eczema in a way that's. Do you play a mobile game yourself,
2: Jay? How much do you think that's going to change now that people aren't commuting? any, you know, at least for the, the short term. I mean, have commuted we already to seen wear, a
1: Jay, to it? if I may ask, from living room to kitchen?
2: <laughs> That's it. <laughs> See, I'm lucky. I haven't commuted in, like, 13 years, you know, but so my commute is, like, down the back stairs every day. Mm-hmm. But, you know, have, have things like the pandemic, where people are basically stuck at home and they're not commuting, contributed to the success of things like Genshin Impact, which you can't do with, with one hand?
1: Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. Absolutely. I think this is one of the one of the aspects. I mean, of course, it's absolutely any statement saying that this contributed for like the major share of success is going to be a speculation, but for sure, being able to Play in a like more safe and more controlled environment has definitely contributed to the you know higher detailness and higher um, like thoroughness of, of of these games and something like which we're more used to see on PC and console. Uh, then of course you can see how much uh, the sales of the consoles have surged during the pandemic and lockdown, and uh, that actually brings us a question. I mean a lot of companies have seen like their numbers growing and growing like rapidly during the. Well, 2020 and beginning of 2021 but what happens when or if the lockdown is lifted is there a chance that people get so tired of staring into screens that they'll never gonna like really be playing again that they'll be spending all the time outside in the bars and the terraces and like all the stuff and mr bill Gates microchips all of us like seriously what so it's there's no clear answer. what I can say is that I'm grateful being in an industry that was not affected by pandemic but was like even prospering due to pandemic, so i think we're all lucky
2: it's one of those things that you know we, we can't forget how bad this has been globally but the silver lining for our industry is that it's actually almost been a good thing in terms of revenues not in terms of the life cost of all of this so it, that was a, a good point about you know like the the surge in, in console sales it's like i know we have multiple switches in this house because none of us want to share basically oh, but yeah uh so do you think it's easier because we're seeing more free-to-play games launch on on switch you know is it is that an easier pathway for developers versus mobile because i I can't imagine that the ua strategy for a console Mm -hmm. free-to-play is nearly as arduous as one for a mobile free-to-play
1: Mm, yeah, that's actually an interesting question because we see more and more free-to-play uh, games coming in consoles. Nintendo has always been a little bit, well, let's say, non-traditional console in a way. It's not as hardcore as Xbox or, you know, PlayStation. And Nintendo Switch, you can, like, take anywhere with you to calm yourself or your crying kid in the airplane. Thank you for that. But uh, I must say that's Free-to-play mechanics is the best thing to do to, you know, to extend reach because when the player is not paying like from the first minute, it's always like the best way to get him into the game and maybe here and her gets enticed and maybe there is like a good way to retain his attention. But um, we can also still say that all the free-play stuff, all like the most coolest stuff is going to be premium and will rest premium forever. So, however, sometimes I kind of like get not that happy when, for example, Mortal Kombat, which I paid for, is actually, you know, like asking for microtransactions to unlock characters or like some skins and all this stuff. But well, I guess this is the re- reality of consumerism and capitalism. So, oh, well, looking at your Mortal Kombat.
2: Exactly. Lina. thank you so much. We're out of time. And so we're, we're going to wrap this one up. But, you know, she <laughs> is available on our Discord server. You can drop chats there. We've got an entire room set to for you know post-session chat with everybody. Um, mm-hmm. thank you so much. And, and this Stay is here, be live, you know, and recorded for everybody. So you can go back if you're just joining us, you can go back and watch it, you know, on our YouTube page whenever you're ready. But with that, we've got Elad coming up next, talking about post-trauma and how it affects the game, you know, how his experiences in combat affected the game that he created and how it affects the creative process as well. So stick around, give us five minutes to switch everything up and we'll be right back, everybody. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Jay. Thanks everyone. Bye guys.
0: Thanks for listening to Indie Game Business. You can learn more about the show and our online business networking events at indiegame.business.